The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I think, in fact, that the scientific perspective at the core of modern psychology, this neuroscience perspective, is fully compatible with the existence of choice and morality and responsibility. In a sense, we can have it all. Happy Tuesday, people. This is the Next Big Idea Daily, and I'm your host, Michael Kovnat. It's a new day. It's a new opportunity to learn, to grow, to be a better person, to improve your life. Sounds like a tall order, I know, but don't worry, we're here to help. We've got some of the smartest writers around summarizing their ideas for you, making it easy for you to get smarter, faster. Today's big thinker is Paul Bloom. Paul teaches psychology at the University of Toronto and is an emeritus professor at Yale. He's written and edited a bunch of books, and he's here today with a little Psych 101, a quick overview of our current understanding of just how that three-pound organ we call a brain creates the rich emotional life we experience every day. His book is called Psych, the story of the human mind, and here's Paul to share a few of the big ideas. We are physical things. Every aspect of thought, our most intimate beliefs and desires and feelings and consciousness and experience are all a result of a very physical brain. I know this sounds unnatural. There's a lot of evidence that intuitively we're common sense dualists. We feel like our minds are separate from our bodies. Um, We are not identical to our bodies. Rather, we occupy them. Many religions assume that when you die, you could leave your body, you could survive the death of your body and ascend to heaven or descend to hell or occupy some spirit world. We're comfortable with stories and fairy tales and science fiction where people switch bodies, where the soul leaves the body and occupies some other body. It feels right. But the science of psychology suggests that it's actually mistaken, that we are physical things. We are incredibly complicated physical things but physical things nonetheless. The mind is the brain. This is an old idea, but with the methods of modern neuroscience, we could zoom in on it. We can um, use imaging mechanisms like fMRI to watch the brain at work while we think about different things, and we are not far from the point where you could watch a brain scan and be able to determine pretty specifically what somebody is thinking. We also know how damage to the brain can damage the most intimate and special aspects of ourselves, robbing us of our self-control, certain emotions, um, certain things that make us human. Now, this matters a lot to know that we're physical things, but in a different sense, it doesn't change that much. It's not, after all, that we know how the brain gives rise to the mind. This is one of the deep mysteries of psychology. It's what the philosopher David Chalmers called the hard problem of consciousness. How can a physical lump of gray matter, uh, neural tissue, give rise to pain and pleasure, love and hate, and all of that? And this is probably the hardest problem that there is. Now, when I tell people that the mind is the brain, or you read it, or you hear about this, there are different ways to react. I know philosophers and psychologists who confidently assert that this means that there's no such thing as free will or moral responsibility. And I met others 
who respond in the opposite way, who reject the science, who worry that this sort of physicalist approach to the mind, this materialism, takes the specialness away from people. It diminishes us somehow. It's too reductionist, too crude. It reduces us to computers or lumps of cells or lab rats. They reason, if psychology is going to tell me I'm just a machine, that the most intimate aspects of my being are nothing more than neural firings, well, so much for psychology. I sympathize with both perspectives, but I don't agree with either one. My own view, which is what I argue through the book, is that we could find a middle ground here. I think, in fact, that the scientific perspective at the core of modern psychology, this neuroscience perspective, is fully compatible with the existence of choice and morality and responsibility. In a sense, we can have it all. I talk a lot about Freud in the book, despite the fact that psychologists these days don't think much of him and don't take him that seriously. And there are good reasons for this. But I think his best idea had staying power. And this is a notion of an unconscious mind that's at war with itself. Have you ever had a powerful attraction to a person or a powerful dislike but didn't know why? Have you ever forgotten someone's name at exactly the wrong time? Have you ever missed an important appointment even though you seemingly had every intention of being there? The unconscious, according to Freud, bleeds out into all of everyday life, showing up among dreams and jokes, speech errors, decisions, and so on. Now, the specifics of Freud's theory of the unconscious are controversial, and many of his specific claims have been challenged. And many psychologists, including myself, think he underestimated the human power for conscious deliberation, the extent to which we really are masters of our own houses. But in his insistence on the centrality of processes that we're unaware of, he was right. This has been supported by contemporary research in cognitive psychology, social psychology, and neuroscience. There's abundant evidence that most of our cognition lies beneath the surface, that we have no direct access to the source of many of our feelings and emotions and desires. Freud was wrong about so many things, but he was right about what matters the most. Common sense tells us that babies don't know very much. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau put it in colorful terms. He wrote, If a child was born in an adult body, such a child man would be a perfect idiot, an automaton, a statue without motion and almost without feeling. He would see and hear nothing. He would recognize no one. The classic metaphor here from philosophers, particularly from John Locke, is that the mind's a blank slate. Metaphors change. A more modern way of putting it is that the baby's mind is like an iPhone without any apps. But there's another view around. This view is nativism, which proposes that much of our knowledge and capacities are part of our natural endowment. We're born with them. Going back to the iPhone analogy, when you actually buy a new iPhone, it comes with several apps, some pre-installed contacts, maps, a dictionary, and so on. Nativism is the view that our brains are just like that. Early philosophers like Plato explained the existence of innate ideas as a result of souls recollecting knowledge learned in past lives. Modern-day nativists, like me, think of this as a product of an evolutionary history encoded in our genes. Now, there has long been a debate about this, but only recently have we developed the methods to test whether or not babies have this knowledge. And most of our studies are done looking at babies' eye movements, what they prefer to look at, how long they look, and so on. The idea here is that babies, like adults, look longer at what surprises them. And if you monitor their looking time at different scenes, you could then infer what they expect and what they know. 
This is all abstract. I want to give you two concrete examples of studies that have really blown our minds, that have changed how we think about babies. The first goes like this. There's an empty stage, and uh, the baby's looking at it. A hand puts a single Mickey Mouse doll on the stage, and then a screen is placed in front of the doll that hides it from view. Then the hand brings out another Mickey Mouse doll and places it out of sight behind the screen. Then the screen is removed. Now, as an adult, you know one Mickey plus another Mickey equals two Mickeys. So there should be two, not one or three. Five months olds know this too. They're very surprised they look longer when the screen is removed and there's now one Mickey or three Mickeys. And this suggests that they could do rudimentary addition and suggests that they know, contrary to what many people believed, that once an object goes behind a screen, it continues to exist. They have what psychologists call object persistence. Babies also have expectations about the behavior of people. In one study that I was involved with many years ago, babies would watch as a character goes up a hill, and then another character would help it up, and a third character would push it down. Then we showed babies two other scenes, one in which the character trying to make its way up the hill approaches the one that helped it, the other in which the character going up the hill approaches the one that hindered it. And as we predicted, babies' looking time suggests that just like adults, they expect that someone's going to approach an individual who previously helped it and avoid someone who previously hindered it. In later research, we find that babies themselves prefer those characters who help over those who characters who hinder. I'm admittedly biased, but I think these studies with babies are among the most interesting discoveries in all of modern psychology. Some people think of the brain as akin to a video recorder. It has a perfect representation of experience and everything gets stored in it. And we might sometimes forget things, both to help with hypnosis or a helpful therapist or just a lot of effort, we can get everything back. One of the lessons of psychology is that this is mistaken. Sometimes what you experience, including what was once right in front of your face, is never attended to and so gets lost forever. Sometimes it gets stored but then it gets forgotten. Memories are encoded in brains, and brains are physical things, and so there's degradation over time. But most important, remembering is a reconstructive event. It brings to bear your own experiences and expectations, and as a result, your memories are a lot less trustworthy than you might think. Some of the best research on this has been done by the psychologist Elizabeth Loftus. So, for instance, some of her work looks at how leading questions can influence memory. In one study, people are more likely to falsely remember there was a broken headlight when they had previously been asked, did you see the broken headlight, which presumes there was one, than when asked, did you see a broken headlight, which doesn't make that presumption. If you ask people, did you see the children get into the school bus, this makes them more likely to remember later on that there was a school bus in the scene, even if there wasn't. Now, in some more dramatic studies, Loftus and her colleagues met with college students' family members and got information about events from their childhood. The students were then reminded about these events and interviewed about their memories. The twist is that for each student, one of the events had never happened. It was made up by the researcher. Such events included being lost in a shopping mall, nearly drowning, spilling punch on a bride's parents during a wedding, and being attacked by a vicious animal. In all of these cases, some of the subjects, not all, came to remember these false beliefs as actually occurring as a consequence 
of being repeatedly asked about them. This research has led to a revolution in the law. We now appreciate that police interrogations that are intended to tap memories can instead shape and correct them, and we see this in the real world. There are numerous cases where people have been put into prison and later exonerated through DNA evidence due to false eyewitness testimony that's been shaped by these interrogations. There are even cases where people have come to believe falsely that they themselves have committed terrible crimes, even if there's clear evidence that they were innocent. And you can see now how this sort of psychological research, along with other research, can have real practical influence for how we shape our policies and live our lives. I want to end by sharing with you some of the discoveries of the field of psychology known as positive psychology. Psychology has long been concerned with human suffering and human sadness, with the origin and treatment of diseases like anxiety and depression and schizophrenia. Positive psychology looks at the bright side, looks at what goes into human happiness and pleasure, satisfaction, and flourishing. And there have been large-scale studies, sometimes involving millions of people, and these have come up with some interesting, robust insights. Some of them maybe won't surprise you. One is that money makes people happier. It's uh, within a country, rich people are happier than poor people. Across countries, citizens of rich countries are happier than citizens of poor countries. And maybe this shouldn't be a surprise. Um, money buys all sorts of things. It buys uh, food and clothing and shelter. It often buys health care, freedom from exploitation, travel, time with friends and family, and so on. A second consideration that seems to really connect to happiness, and this may also be no surprise, is social connections. So um, people are happier when they are surrounded by people, by friends, by family, by those who love and respect them. A recent paper in Science finds that um, being lonely has the same negative effect on us as smoking and obesity. Those two findings may be uh, what just what you'd expect. A third finding is going to be surprising. It has to do with age. The happiest time of life, maybe when you're in your 70s and 80s, and if you're lucky, your 90s. Age seems to show a U-shaped curve where we start off, you know, our early years are relatively happy. There's a drop in the mid-50s about people are, on average, at least happy as they'll ever be. And then their happiness seems to rise again, um, leading to the golden years being the happiest years. Religion makes us happy, though studies suggest it's not the believing in God that makes us happy, rather the social component of religion, going to a mosque or a church or a synagogue or whatever. You might think that men would be happier than women, or women would be happier than men, but one surprises is kind of a wash. Uh, men and women are, on average, equally happy. And finally, and this is an area where I've been very interested in, the effects of children on happiness are mixed. It used to be thought that they make you unhappy. Now other findings find that people with children are happier. The truth seems to be that it depends. It depends where you live. It depends how much money you make. It depends whether you're a man or a woman. It depends um, how old you are. My own feeling is that study of children and happiness is particularly interesting because children may not increase the pleasure of your life in a day-to-day -day sense, but increase other things of value, such as a feeling of meaning and importance. Thank you, Paul. Positive psychology is actually one of our favorite subjects here at the Next Big Idea Club. We've got lots of related book summaries and master classes available on our Next Big Idea app from thinkers like Daniel Kahneman, Angela Duckworth, Adam Grant, Carol Dweck, and hundreds of others. Check that out in your app store. 
or take a look at our box subscription service, where our curators will send the best books of the year right to your door. You can check that out at nextbigideaclub.com and use the code daily for a special discount. And come back here tomorrow when we'll learn how to deal with all those difficult people in your life, how to manage those fraught political conversations, how to turn conflict into collaboration. Our guest will be Amanda Ripley, author of High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. I'm Michael Kovnett. See you tomorrow.